Welcome to Rice is Rice, the podcast about the British East and Southeast Asian perspective on all things Asian and not. I'm Connor. I'm Akina. And I'm Jenny. And I'm really good at the piano. <laughs> I think oh. you're the first piano player we've had on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say. I was about to say. I'm so surprised that we've had no one else say that before, like some kind of instrument, a classical instrument. At yeah. Ah, well, there you go. I think it's something to be uh, proud of. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Absolutely. for sure. It's definitely like a hard skill to learn and people who do do it. It's, I love it um, like in King's Cross when they had the pianos and then just someone just like walks up to it when they're waiting, just like whips out some Vivaldi or something. Yeah, and it's they great. just go mad. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, that's that's showing up to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a stereotype and I guess, but you, uh, in our like conversations beforehand, you said this wasn't due to the fact that your like parents made you in a stereotypical way you chose to do this you chose to learn piano um absolutely i i think the most important thing because i i have a lot of friends i know a lot of people who say oh they really wish they had continued with their music lessons but their parents forced Mm. them and um, they just ended up hating taking Mm. the lessons and now they regret not following through And really the most important thing for me was that I grew up in a household that was already full of music. My dad was an incredibly talented um, amateur musician. Um, So I grew up listening to all his records and just from birth, I was kind of like bashing the piano. And so it was a very natural evolution that they decided to send me to less to take piano lessons. And of course I had an older brother who was already um, doing lessons himself and being quite competitive and wanting to be like big brother I, I followed it yes. yeah <laughs> classic I love how organic the roots of this is it's it's in no way manufactured like in so many instances it might be Today, we're having rice served with our connection to food. I think for our listeners out there who might have noticed that they've, they're they not hearing a usual voice, we should probably yes. say, um, Jem was going to be on this episode, but the um, joys of the joys. pandemic recording, um, which hopefully will be over soon, um, she's having Wi-Fi issues, so she can't be joining us for this episode. But Jem, we're connected with you in spirit. <laughs> but... She's going to miss a good one because today we have a great guest, Jenny Lau, or as you're known online, Celestial Peach, which I think, is that a reference to like the Chinese legend, like the like immortal peach tree? Yes, legend? well done. You're one of the few who actually yeah. know what it refers to. That makes you a good Asian and a good Chinese person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to reveal the fact that I know it's from a very bad very whitewashed film <laughs> but i guess it still counts so i'm just gonna take i'm gonna take it yeah, yeah yeah um but yeah i guess like what is your origin story you know what's your superhero origin story How, who are you and why like celestial peach what is yeah that? i mean we can talk about celestial peach if you want um it's a project that started a few years ago um and initially i wanted to talk about um i was on a vegan journey myself so i was actually revisiting mm. chinese food or the food of my heritage and um learning that it was really adaptable and actually very vegan friendly and i think a lot of people still think that chinese food is you know it's unhealthy it's 
there's a lot of meat um, and that you can't sort of eat uh, this healthy or, uh, you know, a vegetarian diet on it. But of course, there are um, whole um, subsects of uh, Chinese traditions, especially within the Chinese Buddhist tradition, where they have an entire cuisine which is uh, sort of incredibly diverse and um, colorful and really tasty. So um, I started researching, you know, all the different ingredients that I could use um, to, to start cooking. And I decided to um, start a blog and to, to share my findings on mainly on Instagram. Um, and that's where the reference to the celestial peach comes in because I was essentially... I wanted to eat for not immortality, but longevity. So I'm interested in how food can be healing, um, not to use like a woo-woo term, but there, in Chinese culture, there is this idea that food is medicine and you eat um, as a preventative treatment, right? So um, yeah, that's how it's, yeah. That's like, because a lot of Chinese, med like Chinese medicine stores, it's not about like, there's no like pharmacists in the back mixing drugs like together and everything. It's just like, jars of <laughs> roots and like vegetables and barks and stuff and they, they mix it all together to make like a tea that you drink and it's less like i don't know it's very different it's more like what you can absorb from the ingredients from the land yeah i i really do agree and love this about um chinese cuisine like you're ingesting the landscape and that will heal you and it it, it is yeah, like to avoid sounding like woo, but also yes, it it, it is that like it the the earth heals you through like the and yeah, food. And like all the superstitions like if you eat this food, um, if you eat this food, your hair will be shinier or stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, I think it's um it's basically like common sense but packaged into these uh, superstitions, as you say, right? When you break it down, yeah. really, it's about taking responsibility for your for your health and. And um, yeah, so th that's how it kind of started. And what happened was um, it became more of an internal journey. So uh, using social media, I started to connect with a lot of other Brit initially British Chinese foodies. Um, and it, it was paired with this realization that I don't have many Chinese friends in, in my day-to-day -day life. I started to live this very like white <laughs> life. And I had this kind of up call where I was like, yeah. oh my God, I need to find out more about where I come from. I need to reconnect with my roots and mm. what better way to do that than through food. So fast forward three years today, Celestial Peach is this platform where I want to tell stories about Chinese food um, in the diaspora, because I think there is something intangible that connects us all. Um, I think it is this idea of us being displaced from our roots. And it's not just about, of course, it's not just about telling stories about the food, but it's about the people, the cultures and the cuisine behind them. Yeah, I really, when I was doing my research around Celestial Peach, I really loved this idea of like um, it being born out of, I guess, a stage that happens in most of the lives of like the children of, of the diaspora, like us, um, where you have to find a way to reconnect with it or, or, or tap into something that is there. And I really, I really relate to this idea of like feeling like you're living a white person's life. And it reminds me of, do you know the comedian Ali Wong? 
Yes, I um, love her. She's huge. Yes, I love her. And she has this joke where it's like, I feel like um, me and, and her partner, I feel like we're like Asian people, but like white people trying to be Asian people. <laughs> Do you know this joke? Yeah. Uh, and I just I think related to it so much. It's almost like you feel like an imposter in your own culture. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I totally get what you said about... Um, I think most diasporic people will at some point go on this journey. Um, mm. It can take sure. uh, it can take time. So for me, it began when I was in my mid thirties, um, and I have met. You know that I do this interview series with that's called Chinese Foodies of IG, and I've interviewed you know seventy people now, and it's been quite interesting finding out about their journeys to reconnect with their cultural roots. And for some, it happens early on. For some, uh, it happens even later. You know, I have friends who are in the 40s and 50s and they say, wow, I I really didn't feel that connected with my roots and I'm, I'm only now sort of wake, waking up to it. So it's yeah. a wonderful thing. And the other thing that happens is, um, you know, there have been advances in sort of ancestry research. Um, yeah. So one thing that apparently a lot of uh, people in their 60s start to do um, is ancestry research because mm. that's the time when they um, retire and they want to start recording things and finding things out for their grandchildren. The same thing happens for people in their 30s and 40s when they start having children. So I think it's all connected, this kind of journey home and whatever path uh, you take, whatever a medium you choose. Um, for me, it's food. For some others, it could be language or, um, you know, arts and culture. I think um, it happens to everyone. Yeah, for sure. I remember for me, it was like in, like, had it early on, I guess it was in secondary school, you know, because everyone has that like snap moment when they were like, oh, they've been rejecting, you know, their heritage culture for, for Cause years. Because you, you're a teenager. You're a teenager you just... You'd be like, I don't want to be the weird one. I want to fit in with like, <laughs> you know, generally I want to fit in with my white friends because you normally grow up around mostly white people. Um, So like you say that you're BBC, but you said that also you're technically not, but you consider yourself you are. Can you like explain, I guess, what you mean by that? Absolutely. I, technically, I'm BBC because I was born in the UK, um, but I probably am more of this third culture kid because um, my parents, my dad was Hong Kong Chinese. My mum is Malaysian Chinese. They had met and worked here in the UK. And as soon as they had me um, in, this was in 1985, we actually moved to Hong Kong uh, for my dad's job. So I lived, I grew up in Hong Kong for the first 11 years of my life. Um, now, we were part of this uh, generation of Hong Kong Chinese who were lucky to have dual nationality. Um, mm. You know, quite a lot of middle class Hong Kong families had this. They either had like a Canadian passport, Australian passport, American passport. Mm. And it was based on quite strategic decisions like having a child abroad <laughs> and making sure yeah. they had a way out. So the whole idea had always been they want to get out before the handover in 1997. So I left uh, after secondary, uh, after primary school when I was 11 in 1996 with just my mum. And she brought me to London where I continued my studies. And so since then, I have been based in London, uh, except for a few years living abroad. And my dad had always stayed behind and lived in Hong Kong um, oh. until he passed away. Yeah. So I've, yeah, and the reasons for that are very complex and very personal, but 
I know so many families who have done the same thing. And I think we're part of this very interesting strata of uh, not even Chinese, like Hong Kong Chinese, who um, sort of exist between two worlds and as part of a sort of, how do you say, like socio-political decision um, yeah. to emigrate, um, find themselves, yeah, a little bit displaced. Um, yeah, I know, for example, a lot of my friends, they left with their mothers and um, they spent many, many years sort of not, well technically never reunited with their with their father again so for me um i've never been in a whole family unit since the age of 11 and that's actually been quite wow. traumatic yeah 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 i mean i find it all so fascinating what you said about coming into this realization of your part of this whole like socio-political event Circus? movement yeah. happening <laughs> and it's, it's like larger than life and and you can reconnect with that part of yourself and, and so many others who have experienced it. I think it's really traumatic, I'm sure. It, it's yeah. like, it's this whole part of yourself that's just this um, gap. Yeah, Would you like agree? Yeah, totally. And, you know, because because I grew up in Hong Kong for 11 years, I, I, I wasn't thinking, oh, I am a, Chinese, a Hong Kong Chinese person. I just was, you know, I was just living the life of a... Hong Kong Chinese child and it's not until much later on that I I had to reassess that and go back and think mm. god that I basically there was life before the move and life after the move after the move my main mm. priorities were I need to assimilate I need to fit in I'm going to a girls school where everyone's been like really posh and sort of oh. uh, it was quite That's diverse but you know <laughs> for a girls yeah, school and everyone was like yeah, and it was like, and you could speak London speak. And I, I was like, I don't know all your pop cultural references. So I'm just going to have to swat up and listening, that's listen very interesting. to Dr. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's very interesting because that's so Asian, by the way. It's like, watch Total Pops, not because you enjoy it, but because like, I need to <laughs> yeah, be it's homework. in. Yeah, it's homework to get in on school. That's very interesting because um, kind of like, I feel like people who move here at that age, like, like pre-adolescent like yeah. 11 is an important age yeah and even if people just stay here for like those five years they will remain like quite british because that age is very you know molding of your character from then on you know so it's your formative years that's yeah, what they formative. say right the, the, your, this, how you form yourself as a human being those years so do you think if you moved here like say you were you stayed in hong kong uh for secondary school and like graduation you moved here for university do you think you'll be way different even if it's only like a five-year difference yeah i have the perfect uh sort of case study for that which is my older brother um who is four years older and he decided to stay behind and finish his secondary school and then he moved mm. here for uh university and he's much more chinese how do i say he's he's like really connected to his hong kong roots he's much more sentimental about stuff he always wanted mm. to go back more he held on to his friends um and yeah because those were his formative years he even had you know he had a better relationship with my family in hong kong he had a better relationship with my dad so it is um it's very interesting i think and i'm sure people who move when they're younger uh that plays out in a different way too that's very interesting mm. Well, going back to what you said about um, well, well, what we were talking about, having this part of yourself that is, in a sense, almost lost to you, um, you have used food as, as the major way of 
reconnecting with that. And I think that's, it's almost unavoidable for Asian diasporic um, people to do because food is everything. I say this all the time and I, I connect with food a lot, of course. I find it really, I mean, I find it meditative. I find it spiritual. I find it like a, a social thing. It's just, it pervades so many parts of my life. Yeah. Um, and I've only in my early 20s that's just started um and i like i will sit there and eat something and i'm like i want to cry and how do i explain <laughs> why i want to cry right now yeah. um yeah. but yes that that's something again that i i connected with yourself and then celestial peach as a platform and you said something um in one of your interviews that i was reading uh to quote you said objects are talismans and ways of showing that i'm proud to be chinese I think that in this particular instance, you were talking about art when you when you say objects, but I suppose it can also relate to food in a way because it's such a physical thing that you you touch, you feel when you're cooking, and then you ingest, and it's it's part of you. And it's passed down from generations and because a lot of recipes, down. yeah. Um, and it's like you go through the motions of like stirring with your grandpa, and it's just this. Okay, I, I might be like kind of spiraling now. <laughs> so I hope I'm still making sense. But it just Absolutely. all made sense to me. Um, and I did want you to kind of continue what I'm rambling on about. Um, can you talk more about, I guess, that, Cultural connection. that physical nature of, of food? Yeah, totally. I think when people move to a new country, especially if they are uh, immigrants who don't have a lot of... Um, possessions you know what mm. what is it that they hold on to it's their traditions it's their cultural mm. practices and that's why as you say practices such as food are very important religions um because especially because those are accessible those are everyday practices um we all need to eat and um the the memory you know the memory is very important what we're trying to do is constantly recreate a memory uh mm. And so much of it is also around, I guess, the intention, you know. So mm. I think we all know that in Asian culture, uh, emotions are uh, not not typically expressed as as much as they are in 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 the Western world. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. how do our parents how do our parents express their love? It's through cooking and preparing food for us. Um, yeah. And so I think for us, uh, it is laden, food is laden with a slightly extra layer of sort of emotion mm. um, and meaning. Um, I think everyone, I'm sure everyone says that, oh, you know, food is very important to their culture, <laughs> uh, which mm. culture doesn't have, doesn't say that food is important. But um, the I British think it's culture? This, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, like when we talk about, uh, con you know, like Confucian uh, sort of uh, values of the Chinese Confucian values where it's very much about filial piety and respecting mm. the elders and sort of yeah as you say intergenerational learning then all these principles you can find in in um, in how we express ourselves through the food that we cook um, and yeah so I also think I love that you said that you find uh, cooking food meditative and spiritual for me it has been incredibly healing it's, it, mm. I do believe that food um, should be spiritual by mm. spiritual I mean it's a journey to connect with yourself and to know yourself mm. that's all I mean by spiritual I don't mean religious um, and yeah I I think and because 
you know, I do think that everyone should learn to cook and learning to cook yeah. and learning to cook food that is good for you. It doesn't have to be good for anyone else, but food yeah. that sits well with you, with your body, um, with the way you're put together, you know, no one diet can, um, cure, can cure illnesses. No one diet can fit everyone, but you, you can only find that out by experimenting and by sort of eating different things and even paying attention to the what, to the ingredients and to the way that you cook, you know, how you chop a vegetable, uh, mm. how you season it. And then even how you, how you sort of, how you appreciate that food before you start to eat it. The colors yeah. on the plate that, you know, that in itself can give you so much sort of emotional sustenance before you yeah. even start eating it. For sure. I mean, like, it's very interesting that you said um, how you, you know, not one diet can fit all. I think it's very interesting you said that because there was a paper a few years ago that came out basically saying that um, Asian, East Asian, people of East and Southeast Asian descent can absorb or like more nutrition and more energy from rice than Westerners, um, yeah. which makes a lot of sense because, you know, we've been eating rice for thousands of years, you know, in that part of the world. And it's only natural that our body will evolve to be like, okay, well, this is not going away. So let's make it so we can absorb more because a lot of recipes for diets or for like nutritional lifestyle, they're always like, oh, don't eat like white rice. Don't eat that they, much rice at all. Cause it's not good for you. You know, it's just starch or whatever, but it turns out <laughs> they're very Eurocentric. Yeah. You know, it's a very Eurocentric view on diet, uh, dieting and on health foods. This like whole because it's a massive market now, you know, since mm. maybe like 2010, the health mm. food market yeah. has kind of um, assimilated like pick and choose Asian, you know, bits saying like, oh, we discovered this technique in Asia right. that makes you know right. the skin glisten. Like or... we like tofu, but MSG is bad. Rice is bad. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, yeah. so I just want to see like, what is your view on that? Because you grew up in a time where it was still a very heavy stereotype that Chinese food is cheap, dirty food. And now people are like... That's still a thing now. I mean, yeah, yeah still a thing <laughs> now. But but people are also like, oh, Asian food is like this godsend, golden crown of, yeah. like, you know, health food market. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad yeah. you brought that up. Um, and it, about the absorption of nutrients in rice, because, I mean, I just to disclaim, I'm not a nutritionist, not a dietitian, but I, I do believe in following sort of like ancestral eating, which is eating close to what your ancestors ate or even eating close to what you were brought up on. And if you think about it, I mm. for the first 11 years of my life, I ate rice. I ate rice, you know, every day. And um, I was the way we we cooked and the way we shopped you know my mom would take me to the wet markets in hong kong and we would go and buy the freshest vegetables ingredients possible you'd go and buy pick your live fish and your live chicken and then the butcher would just take it around the back kill it oh, so there fresh. you go it's your you know literally market to table and it's it's still flipping around and so yeah, yeah for me i think that again firstly eating close to what your ancestors ate and what you were brought up on and also uh, you know eating as fresh ingredients as possible that you can't go wrong there and you know with things like wheat which were only introduced to my diet in um when i moved to england mm. wheat and dairy that just wreaks havoc on my system i i know mm. it even now when i eat too much wheat uh when i also sometimes slip and have not slip but sometimes i do eat dairy and cheese and i just 
I don't know. It clogs up my system, and that's not a yeah. judgment. I'm not being like, <laughs> you. Oh, oh, you know, I'm 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 gluten intolerant or whatever. But that is a fact. I did a I did a DNA test where it said you're lactose intolerant um, because most Asian people are. So yeah, it's like seventy percent or something like that, isn't it? It's like a really really high percentage. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as for your um, your comment about this disparity and sort of the I guess the value of Chinese food um yeah I guess it never occurred to me because um as I said I I grew up eating amazing Cantonese food as part mm. of my everyday diet and I guess when I moved here um the only restaurants we uh could go to that were Chinese were serving I guess they were serving like okay Chinese food but it wasn't it was it was actually nothing like what I ate back in Hong Kong and because what we were yeah. eating was British Chinese food which is its yeah. own genre its own category and again people don't realize that so actually you know that kind of food to me was a bit foreign we uh, when we would go out to um chinese restaurants when i was a teenager i would always order like the kind of what people call guilty pleasures like sweet and sour yeah. and you know crispy beef and peking duck because i never ate that in, in hong kong yeah what do you do what do you think what were like what was your first impression when you were like 11 or 12 or whatever and you went out to a chinese restaurant excited to be like oh yeah i have some chinese restaurant food i haven't had this since i moved here and then they bring out stuff like just like Tao fan with whatever and then sweet and yeah. sour and this yeah. is like this is not Chinese food did you kind of go through your mind being like confused did you ever reject it as no I mean I didn't reject it but it wasn't it didn't bring up anything for me I know yeah. a lot of people say that food is emotional um it's not actually the case for me and maybe it's because ugh, I don't know how to describe it but um, when I, you know, when I saw these menus and I tasted this food for the first time in England, I, it didn't bring anything up for me. So mm. I think from an early age, I had already like divorced emotion from food because there was no nostalgia. There was no nostalgia in what I was tasting. Right. Yeah. Food is nostalgic, uh, but I don't yeah. think it's it, it doesn't need to be emotional for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I do experience this a lot weirdly with a lot of my white friends who are kind of starting to learn about um asian cuisine and they love it and they they um they talk about the chinese takeaway food and it you know when you can tell someone's trying to like show off and they're like oh but it's not it's not authentic so i don't like that and i was like uh -huh. i like it yeah. <laughs> i like chili beef <laughs> because they yeah. know my partner is british born chinese so they i think knowing that they try to tap into yeah. something and, and get me to agree like oh yeah i agree with you that's trash and i'm like i like it i think that a word is very dangerous and it's something i don't use anymore um because too often it's just used as a tool in sort of cultural wars essentially and mm. as yeah. authenticity is a way to assert your authority mm. uh, i mean authenticity is is individual it's and it's based on your own personal experiences you know British yeah. Chinese food is authentic in its own right um American Chinese food is authentic in its own right it yeah. you, you don't you, it it's just so disrespectful to so, sort of take away the legitimacy of um immigrants who 
basically adapted uh, their cuisine using local ingredients uh, and equipment and um, also having to sort of price their food at a certain price point so that they yeah. could get customers. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Have you, um, so there's this whole movement, movement, I guess, well, there's this whole debate going on right now. Um, you know the chef Dave Chang, the restaurateur, I guess he's called. Mm, yeah. The Momofuku guy. He was he's like doing this whole thing of trying to get East and Southeast Asian food into the same um I guess category as like French cuisine or Italian cuisine. Like says, like caliber, like the yeah, same caliber. Because like people view, you know, French and Italian cuisine as this high class mm. type of food that you can charge, you know, like fifty quid for a steak or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the restaurant industry only sees East Asian food. I think it's changing now because you do definitely do get like very posh Japanese restaurants, you know, or some very posh yeah. new style, like Beijing type restaurants, you know. Um, but yeah. for the general fact, I don't think you'll see like a Malaysian restaurant that's high class with, you know, re- reservations only type thing. Do you, I, I'm assuming they not that you don't like this and you think that this is yeah. kind of like bullshit because, you know, food is food and like putting yeah. a whole class thing to it. It's kind of dumb. Yeah, totally. And uh, I mean, you can't... Um... You can't talk about this without addressing the, its relationship to immigrants in a country, right? So yeah. it all depends. Uh, how people see ethnic food is completely related to how they have perceived and accepted ethnic immigrants. So mm. the reason why Japanese food has always been perceived as higher class is because um, for Americans, for example, their first encounters with Japanese immigrants are uh, quote unquote, um, were businessmen. So mm-hmm. that's how they were introduced to the cuisine, right? Um, I guess Japanese businessmen would have taken them out for dinners and then, you know, in their minds, the two things are linked and it, beco- it belongs to this certain kind of uh, class. And whereas mm-hmm. the immigrants here, you know, so for brown people and Chinese people, we, we've always been um, sort of lower working class, uh, working the laundries, the corner shops, the takeaways. Of course, mm-hmm. people are always going to expect that food to be cheap. And it takes a lot of work to kind of um, elevate that in people's perception. And it doesn't need to take a white chef to do that either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's also another massive thing. The cookery books in bookstops, bookstops, bookshops. The cooking, the cooking station and bookshops, I always realize half the Asian food uh, books are written by white writers. And I don't have a problem with that because I really like, um, like Fuchsia Dunlop, right? Mm, I think she's yeah. great. I, I really enjoy watching her when she's on TV and when she speaks about food. But I know I feel really weird seeing more white names on these cookery books than, you know, Asian ones. Especially, which I didn't realize this, especially Thai food is a massive culture of thai food being served in pubs which is really odd and never would have thought about it i actually looked into this the thai food and pubs thing did oh, you yeah? do you know the backstory i think it all started i do not know no. the backstory. <laughs> i googled it a long time ago now i'm not sure if i'm going to tell it correctly but um <laughs> it started with one of the chains one of the pub chains not sam smith pubs something like that but um they they wanted to start serving food with drinks i think and it just so happened that thai is like Thai is the perfect cuisine um, to cook very quickly and serve, um, you know, and it's cheap, again, quote unquote, uh, cheap to prepare, um, 
you only need one stove, one wok. Um, so, mm, yes, and yes. the other thing, the other thing is that the Thai government has for a long time been sponsoring Thai chefs uh, to essentially export their cuisine as a sort of like a cultural um, emblem. So they've yeah. been sponsoring oh. Thai chefs to train and then sort of sending them abroad to to spread the message, as it were. But uh, yeah, I think uh, please, if anyone uh, hears this and says she's talking total <laughs> bullshit, call me out on it. But I think it makes sense though the you know the the quick the quick cook cuisine. There's nothing sort of better suited to pub food than something like Thai or Asian cooking for sure. Yeah, and also you can do it in massive vats. Like and also huge vats of curry. The flavors are always so intense. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, and you can, you know, yeah, you can, you can uh, cover up a multitude of sins with just lots of fish sauce, sugar, and salt. <laughs> <laughs> just all the flavors. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to go back a bit, I had two thoughts while you were speaking, and uh, I'm trying to like hold on to those thoughts, but we, my mind is moving like a, a thousand miles per minute. But when you were talking about um, kind of removing the word authenticity from your vocabulary, I went through, I wanted to tell you, I went through a phase of like really being suspicious about uh, fusion restaurants that mix an Asian cuisine with something European or, or something other than what it is. And mm. I put a lot on my Instagram about like, I don't like this. Um, and I think it's <laughs> misunderstood um, because, yeah, people suddenly think that I just I'm a purist and I, I think that Asian food should be Asian <laughs> food and there are rules and it should just stay the way that it is for years and years and years. But it's not that it's like it like we were talking about. It's the politics of it. It's the money of it. Like who's who's profiting from this kind of food. Um, and that's what I have a problem with. And I think I just wanted to throw it out there to anyone because yeah. I think it's just such a misunderstanding the second yeah. thought you were you were talking about how like British Chinese takeaway and American Chinese takeaway is a, is real like it's a thing it happened it, it, it has this whole history um, and we shouldn't just kind of push it away or, or discount it um, god I'm trying to like really hold on to what my thought was uh and yeah, I agree. I think it's difficult when you're trying to decontextualize a food. It always has a context. Yeah. Everything has a context. And it's the same with Filipino food, what I'm currently trying to tap into. The nature of Filipino food is that it's made to be changed. That's why we have so many sauces. Sausawan is, is the word for sauces. And it's like, unlike something like French cuisine, where the chef make something for you and you have to consume it the way the chef intended. Filipino mm. food is someone will make something for you and it's up to the 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 eaters, the, the consumers of that food to change it to their palate. And in that way, it's communal. And so Filipino food by nature is made to be changed and it has been changed through all of the, the Spanish, the Americans, the Chinese, everyone who came through the Philippines. Um, and it's, yeah, it's with Filipino food at least, it's impossible to be pure about it. Absolutely. And um, I love what you said about um, you being able to adapt the cooked the, the mm. cooked dish, your preference. So is it like, um, again, I can only talk about 
uh, Thai food, for example, where you have that sort of spice rack and you can basically add on more of the vinegar, more of the salt, more of the MSG. Yeah. Do you have yeah. the same thing on a Filipino table? On the table, there's always vinegar, always soy sauce, always like these little um, acidic, uh, it's like tiny, it's called calamansi. I'm not sure if you've, yeah. or yeah, if yeah, it's called something else. Yeah, I love that so much. And calamansi juice is, yeah. is my jam. Um, yeah, there's always calamansi, there's always chilies. And so it's laid out in the table and you can mix it any way you like. Um, I guess in the same way that you you do when you're having dim sum, right? You just make yeah, your own sauce. Tart, like yeah, that, you know, that, that four, that four sauce yeah. thing. This is a great example of this. Is Do you remember years ago, was it Bon Appetit, I think? They released that video about that white guy. They had a fur yeah. video teaching you how to make fur. And then he was like, you yeah. can't put sriracha on fur. That's disgusting. You should not be... And then, then all these Vietnamese people like put <laughs> pictures of like all the different shit in their yeah. fur. Um, that's yeah. like a perfect example of someone like using the authentic word, you know, yeah. for their own gain, just to like, you know, make it more expensive or whatever. And then like getting completely wrong, really. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the the problem is uh, a lot of these kinds of, let's say, chefs are. Um, it, it's a, like a big, can I say, dick swinging competition for them. Oh, so one hundred percent. It's all about asserting their authority. So you can't challenge the sh the chef's authority. I mean, if you want to put ketchup in it, that's like sacrilege, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, we come from cultures where maybe. I mean, I love um, I love going to Singapore, uh, where I don't know if you guys have been, but they have this amazing sort of tradition of like zichar. It's called zichar restaurants, where like they're they're anonymous. These chefs they basically just run these restaurants where they're slinging out like home style cooking, um, but at really affordable prices. And you can go there with a big group, and then you order lots of dishes and stuff that you'd never really see here. And um, I just love the the fact that they aren't, you know, it's not like a name chef. It's not about putting your name to a restaurant. What they're doing is they, they're cooking to nourish and feed you. And that to me is, I don't know, that's what a chef is. But uh, quite often you encounter um, big egos that can't be, can't be contended with. <laughs> yeah, when people attach celebrity to it and suddenly it's not about mm. the food, it's mm. about the names. Yeah. Um, yeah, I completely agree. In that case, it's time for Bite Size Bites. Uh, Gem, do you want to sing a theme song? <laughs> bite Size Bites! <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, okay, so Jenny, I have 10 questions here, right? You don't know what the questions are. Um, they're very easy. They're not like, you don't need to answer whole sentences. You can just answer like a few words or whatever. Um, but just do the first thing that comes into your head, okay? Let's do it. Okay, so first question, rice or noodles? Rice. Uh, favorite app on your phone? Instagram? <laughs> no, can I take it back? Can I okay. take it back? <laughs> okay, take it back. <laughs> can you ask it again? Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite app on your phone? Right now it's Coinbase where I'm tracking my cryptocurrency. Oh, oh wow. wow. <laughs> What was your last meal? Um, I, ha I had some celery with hummus and tofu. <laughs> <laughs> Always tofu. With tofu? Is that tofu on the tofu. side? Or did you like, dip, dip the tofu in the hummus? It, 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 all, just go, it all goes in one bowl. Oh, interesting. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Piano or violin? Piano. Come on. <laughs> Siwoo or Loon Fung? Loon Fung, because I think they're the underdog. 
So I always like to support oh, the underdog. Think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, sweet and sour chicken or crispy chili beef? Sweet and sour chicken, but chicken, because uh, I'm vegan. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, tea or coffee? Tea. Yeah, very uh, Specifically, um, I love Earl Grey tea and I also love Pu'er uh, tea, which is very good for your digestion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very oh, good. Very, very rich, earthy taste. Very old man you. tea, I would say. <laughs> yes, know? yes. Or the yeah, granddad it's my, that like, my, it, my father passed it on to me. <laughs> yeah. The super strong ball, like it was just like black. Yeah. yeah. Old yeah. Chinese man inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, would you rather take the easier paved route or the off beaten harder route? I'm already taking the off beaten, off beat, off track, off off track, off beaten. Off yeah. Track. yeah. <laughs> Apologies. That I one. don't know really what the phrase is. Off but the that beaten one. track. Off the beaten track. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What is your top yum chow order? Top what? Oh, yum cha. Um, I love chang fun. I love the texture in my mouth. Any specific mm. chang fung or just like any chang fung? Uh, I love the one that has yao zha guai, the fried dough sticks in the middle. Ooh, you... and, oh, and yeah. and the the, yes. the the trick is you you can't pour the soy sauce over it until you're about to eat it because otherwise it gets soggy. Because it's just like absorbs it. So many textures. Yeah, right? there's a lot of textures. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And last question. After Rice is Rice, obviously, <laughs> what is your favorite podcast? Oh my gosh. Um, I have to shout out this is a food podcast. It's called Extra Spicy, which is the new podcast from Soleil Ho, uh, the legendary wow. food writer yeah, from yeah, San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. He used to run Race a Sandwich, which was one of the most. Yeah, of... I used to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it. it's so inspiring and and influential for me. So, um, I'm really enjoying extra spicy right now. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. I'm gonna add that. Can I say a second, second one? Yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah, sure, go for it. Okay, I'm also really enjoying XO Soused, which is the podcast from Andrew Wong, uh, the two Michelin star Chinese chef, and Dr. Muktadas, who is a Chinese food anthropologist. And if you love, wow. Uh, if you love cooking Chinese food and you love the history of it, this is a must listen. That sounds really cool. I didn't realize wow. food anthropologists were a thing. That's, but of course it is. I know, you know? That's, so in, that's so interesting to me. Never occurred to me that, oh, wow, that's a really <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm going to listen to that one. The, for thanks sure. for the recommendations. Well, okay, that was our bite-sized bites. And if you didn't know those 10 bits of information about Jenny Lau of Celestial Peach, you now know it. So you're welcome, listeners. <laughs> Cool. That 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 was our podcast, and I think definitely one of my favorite ones for season two. I had yeah. so much fun. Um, thank you to Jenny Lau for joining us for this episode. And do you have anything that you want to plug? Anything that you're working on that you just want to bring any, out into the, the the ether? Any general shout outs you think people should know about? There's a lot of um, a lot of emotion sort of floating around in our community right now and i know there have been um some sort of horrific uh current events that have sort of unsettled mm. us and there's obviously also been this huge spike in anti-asian um hate in the us and also in the uk and um i just wanted to remind everyone to take care of themselves and mm -hmm. um, look after their mental health um, there are some amazing organizations you could um, 
volunteer for or work for if um, if supporting the community is something that you're interested in. Two of the organizations that I'm um, volunteering for are Hackney Chinese Community Services and the London Chinese Community Centre who are based in Chinatown and they are at risk of closure if they don't meet their fundraising target. Mm. So that's one thing that I'm working on right now. Amazing. Great. So if anyone listening to this would like to follow you where can they find you you can find me uh chatting <laughs> away at instagram.com forward slash celestial peach underscore uk uh, it's really annoying because someone still is sitting on the celestial peach hashtag but that's okay no, no <laughs> but you're, not, you're not holding anything against them, right <laughs> No. Um, and I also have a website where I just can't be asked to update it. But um, it's yeah. a great website. It looks yeah, great. Yeah. And Thank what you. about for us? Where can they find us if they want to keep listening to Rice is Rice? Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Rice is Rice Pod, on Twitter at Rice is Rice underscore pod, and on our website, Rice is Rice dot buzzsprout dot com. Got it. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And yeah, every Wednesday to catch us here, we'll have. You know, maybe not as great guest as Jenny, because you're definitely <laughs> the best guest ever. Um, we do flattery here on yeah. the podcast. But Intense flattery. We have, we'll have guests close to as good as Jenny. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just catch us on all the podcasting sites. And don't forget to get some rice in your life. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>